Before we get started in our text this morning, I do have a couple questions, and some of you are like, you always have questions for us. You're always asking us questions. Now, here's the reality. Have you ever noticed that sin looks worse on other people? No, seriously. Have you noticed that? Like, you see someone, that they, they tell a fib, they tell a lie, and you're like, oh my goodness, they just lied. Or, or you hear someone, they begin to gossip, and you're like, oh, they're gossiping. Or you see somebody, and they're checking somebody out, and you're like, I can't believe they just checked that person out. But why is it that we always see sin so quickly on somebody else, but not on ourselves? You know, we're not that quick when it comes to sin with ourselves. We're so quick when we see it on other people. But when we engage in it, we don't see it. And quite frankly, it's because many of us have a pretty lofty view of ourselves. We don't think we're that bad. But when we see it on somebody else, like, whoa, look what they did. Look what they said. Look how they responded. But we think, man, I would have never done that. I would have never responded that way. And we're so quick to judge others. Now, is this making sense to anybody this morning? Aren't we quick to see it in other people? We see where they're falling short. But the reality is, with the exception of Jesus Christ, nobody is so high or so holy that they can't fall into sin. Do you hear that? With the exception of Jesus Christ, nobody is too holy or too high not to fall into sin. And the flip side is true as well. That nobody can fall so low that they're beyond the forgiveness of God. We gather this morning for some hope in the Scriptures. We gather to see the reality of life. But we gather to see the magnitude of God's grace. But in order for us to understand the magnitude of God's grace, we must first recognize the horror of human sin. We must see it. In other words, to appreciate the breathtaking glory of God's forgiving grace, we must first comprehend the depths of our depravity. And church, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't come natural. We don't just automatically say, oh man, look at that. I did this again. I did that again but we see it all around us. We see it in others. We see it in humanity. This morning, I want to illustrate this point by someone we might be very familiar with, an Old Testament man of faith, someone named David. Now, many of you know a lot about David. David, from a young man, he demonstrated an amazing faith and trust in the Lord. How many remember that Philistine giant? Remember him? Goliath? The Israeli army frayed, terrified of this man who was mocking God. And yet young David comes up and goes, I'm not scared. And he goes after him. And he slays the giant. And he cuts off his head. You guys remember that? This same David would be a shepherd out taking care of sheep and would kill lions and bears. He was an amazing young man. And as he grew under King Saul, serving King Saul, he was a warrior. He would go out and kill tens of thousands where the people would praise him, David and his tens of thousands. David was an amazing man of faith, one who trusted God at all times, one who had great integrity. He took the high road often. 
when people would say, why don't you just take out King Saul who's coming at you and attacking you? David honored God. David submitted to God. He did what was right. The Bible even describes him as a man after God's own heart. What a testament about a man. Hebrews chapter 11, many of us call it the Hall of Faith. It lists David in that Hall of Faith. He's one of these men. He was a mighty man. He was a shepherd. He was a musician. He was a warrior. Strange combination, by the way. But he was all those things. And he did it for the glory of God. But then, some of you know the rest of the story. But then in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read that when kings were supposed to go off to war, David stayed home. There was a problem. He wasn't doing the responsibilities he was supposed to be doing. He stayed home. And one evening he goes to the housetop and he looks out and he sees a beautiful woman. And she is bathing. And he asks about her. And they tell him, is that not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of the soldiers who are out in battle where he's supposed to be? And David asks for her. And David lies with her. And she becomes pregnant. Church, I want you to think about this real quick. David, a man after God's own heart. David, this man who we see throughout the scriptures, God used mightily. In a moment, David falls into heinous sin. And when he falls into sin, you would think, you would say, oh God, I have sinned. But he doesn't. David instead finds out that Bathsheba's pregnant. And he goes, oh my, my secret's going to get out. So he sends for her husband to be brought in from the field, from battling. And he says to Uriah, go home to your wife. Basically, the euphemism says, go home and lie with your wife. Enjoy your wife. And Uriah, being a man of integrity, says, with my soldiers out on the field fighting, I cannot go back and be with my wife. And he sleeps on the door, on the doorway of the palace, will not go home. So David goes, great, what are we going to do? i got to come up with a better plan. So the next plan, David's like, I'm going to get him drunk. And I'll try it again. But that doesn't work either. So David then decides something even more drastic must take place to hide his sin. And David sets up to have Uriah murdered on the battlefield. And not only Uriah gets killed, but other soldiers along with him. And all along hiding his sin, trying to cover it up. And church, I ask you this morning, does that sound similar to sin? Is that what sin does in our lives? That sin creeps in, and instead of an open confession, it's, well, let me hide it. Let me tuck it away. Let me do something else to cover it up. And here we have a man with a heart after God's own heart, and this happens to him. But God, because God is faithful, even when we are faithless, God sends Nathan the prophet to him. And Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12, and I encourage you guys to read those chapters later, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. But Nathan goes to him tells him a parable. And David responds to the parable about hearing the injustice and says, that man should surely die in this parable. This rich man who took this lamb, the only lamb of this poor person, he should die. And Nathan says, you are the man. You are the man. And it was at that point that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, 
that David turns to Nathan and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan tells him something remarkable. Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. You see, David was an adulterer, and David was a murderer. And according to the law, David should have been put to death. But God in his grace and God in his mercy put it away. And David will respond in a cry of repentance to the Lord. And church, that is what we'll be looking at this morning. If you're taking notes, the title of the message is The Magnitude of Divine Grace. Our text this morning will be Psalm 51. If you're taking notes, you like the points? Don't worry, we won't be here until like tomorrow we're doing six points, but we are covering six points this morning. Some of you are like, oh, Pastor, you're going to kill us with six points? Point number one, we're going to look at a cry for forgiveness in the first two verses. Cry for forgiveness. Point number two, a confession of sin we'll see in verses three through six. Then a call for cleansing, verses seven through nine. A commitment to holiness, verses 10 through 12. A consecration of life verses 13 through 17. And lastly, point number six will be a concern of God's glory. The last two verses, 18 and 19. Church, before we look at the scriptures, let's pray together. Father, you are holy. You are righteous. And you are good. You are a God merciful. You are a God who is gracious. You are a God who is slow to anger. You're a God who is abounding in steadfast love. Oh God, you are a God who is faithful. God, we pray this day that you would help us through the power of your Spirit to comprehend and to respond to the depths of your amazing grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to open up to Psalm 51. If you have the bulletin this morning, the text is also in your bulletin. And if you could rise to your feet for the honoring of the public reading of God's Word, I'll read Psalm 51. I'll be reading from the ESV translation this morning. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So reads God's infallible, inerrant, and holy word. Please be seated, church. This message this morning and this text this morning should be so near and dear to us because as I look out at us as a group, I am certain that the scriptures are exactly correct when it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've all sinned. And here we have a man who desired to glorify God, desired to chase after God, desired to do what was right, and he fell into horrific sin. And this morning we have before us his response. What does one do when confronted with sin? How do we respond when confronted with sin? As we go through this, we will see David takes ownership of his error. He does not excuse it away. But the first thing we'll see in verse 1 is he cries out to God for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. And he bases it on God's steadfast love according to God's abundant mercy. He says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. David is very aware of his sin at this point. He is engulfed with the guilt of sin. He is saturated with the sorrows of sin. He's overwhelmed by the shame of sin. And he comes to God on terms that are solely based on God's character. He comes to God and he cries out, have Mercy on me, O oh God. Mercy is the only way that sinners can approach God. That we approach Him on the basis of mercy. Oh God, have mercy on us. David knows the attributes of God. David knows what was taught. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, we read about God. He is a God merciful. He's a God who is gracious. He's a God who's slow to anger. Church, that's a wonderful thing. He's a God slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love, and he is a faithful God. That is our God. Church, that is our God. Those are his characteristics. He's not one quick to judge. He's one who's patient. He's one to pour out love and mercy and grace. And David comes before him with his sin glaring him in the face and pleads for a pardon. Oh, God, pardon me. And it's based entirely on the fact that he knows God is a God of love and that he's a God of mercy. And he describes his failures, his personal failures, as a transgression, as an iniquity, and as sin. You go, well, why the three? Transgression is to cross a forbidden boundary with the thought that this is a serious rebellion. It means doing what you know you ought not do. You transgressed. It's, I know I shouldn't do this, but there I go. 
his transgression. He also spoke of iniquity. Iniquity is what we also call original sin. It's the depravity of our nature. It's what we are. That from Adam, we've inherited this sinful nature. And then many of you know sin just means falling short. It's missing the mark. As an archer would pull back and look at the target, and that arrow is flying, and then come, bloop, short of the target. That's sin. Missing the mark. Missing the perfection of God. David asked in this opening prayer unto God, he asked for forgiveness in three different ways. First, he says, blot out my transgressions. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, God speaking says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Church, that is a glorious thing. What does it mean to blot out? If you've ever been charged of a crime and you went into court, there would be a document that lists all of your crimes, all of the things you've done. To blot out in our day and age would be someone getting on the computer highlighting the offense number one and hitting delete. Highlighting offense number two, hitting delete. Three, four, all the way down until it was clear. That's what he's saying is all my offenses, blot them out. Lord, take care of them, remove them from me. But sin and iniquity, he says, this is within me. It's much deeper. It's much deeper than what I did with Bathsheba or Uriah, that this sin dwells in me. And some of you understand this. I spoke to a gentleman recently, and he said, Robert, when will it stop? When will the temptation stop to sin? When will that end? I said, well, the good news, it will. When we're in glory with Jesus. But for now, he's broken the bondage of sin but there's still temptation. David says, look, I've got this iniquity in me. It's deep. And he begs to God, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. To wash him means take me and, and do something internally. Scrub what needs to be scrubbed. Wash what needs to be washed. Some of you take spray and wash and put it on a, on a shirt. Spray and wash is not going to work here. This needs to be divine intervention. And he's crying out to God, oh God, would you do something internally? Would you wash me? He says, cleanse me from my sin. Take all the dirt, all the filth from my sin, and cleanse me from it. Some of you know what that's like. You fall into sin and you feel dirty. You feel ashamed. You feel guilty. David is crying out to God, wash me from the inside out. Cleanse me from all of this. It is a prayer for pardon. It is a pleading for acquittal. It's a cry for forgiveness. David continues our point number two this morning. It's a confession of sin. A confession of sin. Look with me at verses three through six. David says, for I know my transgressions. I know what I did. He says, my sin is ever before me. And look what he says in the very next verse. Against you? You only have I sinned and dealt what is evil in your sight. Stop there. Church, I want you to analyze what David has done. He went, he took Bathsheba, he committed adultery. He took Uriah, had him murdered. He covered it up with a bunch of lies and stories and everything else. He's the only person that he sinned against God. We would say he, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He, he sinned against the soldiers that were out in the field. He sinned against those soldiers' families who died when he plotted against Uriah. 
there was a whole lot of sin. But what we must see is that when we sin, we first and foremost sin against the holy God. That our sin, our rebellion is always against God first. It is not against others, it's against God. And David acknowledges, my sin, O oh God, not that he didn't hurt others around him, but my sin, first and foremost, was against you, O oh God. My rebellion was against you, O oh God. And he tells God in his prayer, in the second half, verse 4, he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, O oh God, you could do as you please. You're a God who is just. You could respond to my sin as you please, but I'm pleading, have mercy on me. He said, God, I knew better. God, I went and did what I knew I ought not do, and I did it anyway. I knew better, so God, you are just. Do as you please, but God, have mercy. He then goes on in verse 5 and says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What is he saying? He's not saying that his mom was in sin, and that's how he came here. He's saying when he was born, when he came out of the womb, he was a sinner by nature. And he's not excusing his sin. He's saying, whoa, right now, oh God, just the sin of Uriah and Bathsheba, it's far greater than that. That I am a sinner by nature. Oh God, I need help. I need help from the inside out. He is not excusing his sin. I want you to see something here as he goes to God and says, God, I have sinned against you. David didn't go to God and say, well, God, the reason I went to Bathsheba is because my wife hasn't been intimate with me for a month. He didn't make an excuse. He didn't say, oh, God, you don't know what it's like to, to rule a kingdom, like he doesn't know, and you don't know the stresses that are on me, and I just need a break, and I had to take a break. There was no justification in when he confessed to God. There was no but this excuse or but that excuse. It was, God, I've sinned against you. God, I am a sinner from the inside out. And he says in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret of heart. He's saying, God, although this sinful flesh desires to sin, God, you've taught me right. I know what is right. I know that I've transgressed your law. I know that I willingly sin against you. And in response to that, he's going to call for cleansing. Again, we'll see point number three, a call for cleansing in verses seven through nine. David says, purge me. This word purge, it actually literally means de-sin me. Take the sin out of me. Purge me, he says, with hyssop. Some of you that are familiar with the Old Testament know that hyssop, this little plant, they take a little piece of it and the priest would dip it in blood and he'd sprinkle it to consecrate people, to make things holy. As, he did, as Moses did when he enacted the covenant, he sprinkled blood on everything to cleanse them. That is what David is crying out for. He says, I need to be cleansed by the blood of an innocent one. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we read, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. David is saying, Sprinkle, that is, take the hyssop and spread all over. I need to be cleansed. I need to be forgiven. And church, this works the same for us today. This is why Christ needed to go to the cross, that innocent blood could be shed for us. We read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, 
God says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What has happened? What has transformed them? What has made them white as snow? An offering of blood. And church, this is the same thing that happens with us today. That no matter how far we have fallen, no matter what we have done, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We have such a hope in Jesus. But the reality of sin is that there are consequences in sin. Those of you who have fallen into sin and given in to the temptations of it, you know that there is also misery that comes along with a pattern of sin. In verse 8 of Psalm 51, David starts off and says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Wasn't this weird? Because sin tempts us that there is going to be great joy there. There's going to be great pleasure there. There's going to be great reward there. And yet, it leaves us empty. It leaves us full of shame and guilt. It leaves us with horror. It leaves us with images of stuff that we don't want to go back to. And David says, I've lost what I once had. And it was just enjoying God. That God, we were together. That God, I would call out to you and walk in your ways. And I have been gone. And that's what sin will do. Sin will harden our hearts. Sin will make us think that God has left. But the reality is, our hearts have been hardened by sin. David cries out, God, give me back that joy. Give me back that gladness. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This is figurative. God didn't break his bones, but he is crushed by the weight of his sin. He's crushed by it. We read in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. David writing says, For when I kept silent, when I held my sin to myself, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David felt the effect of sin. It was weighed down upon him. David, in all that sin, was not enjoying life. Sin is a lie. The temptation of there's a better life over here or the grass is greener on the other side is a lie. David chased after it and he was crushed by it and the weight of it. James Montgomery Boyce said this in your bulletin. He said, allowed to continue, sin will remove every good thing from our lives. Joy, health, wealth, and at last, even life itself. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have fallen into a pattern of sin where everything that you once enjoyed of life, you could no longer enjoy. You had been duped by a counterfeit. And yet there is grace being extended to us today. That once again we can look at the magnitude of divine grace that God would pour out His grace, His mercy to us. David cries out in this prayer in Psalm 51, verse 9, because God, hide your face from my sins and again, blot out my iniquities. Church, that's the third time he's re referenced that. 
This is what was pressing on him. I've sinned against God. Oh, God, blot out my iniquities. Then David commits to holiness. In verses 10 through 12, you're taking notes. Verse uh, Point number four, a commitment to holiness. And I want to point out what David says, verse 10. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's two things going on here. One, guilt will tatter and tear apart the heart. Guilt will weigh down on the heart. Shame will weigh down on the heart. The filth of sin will weigh on the heart. But David didn't just only need all that clean. He needed a new heart. David had just said, God, from the moment I was born, I've I've been in sin, meaning this is not the only sin in my life. There's a propensity to go towards sin. I need a new heart. I need a clean heart. I need a right spirit, one that would chase after you and not after the things of this world. David's cry to God is exactly what God promises to give. Church, this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what he's given you, is a new heart and a right spirit. We see this promise in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. David's saying, oh God, start refreshing me. God, take what's here, cleanse it, make it new. God, that I would walk in your ways. David continues in his cry out to God here in verse 11, Psalm 51, 11. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Church, you know what that's called? It's called condemnation. And when we sin, there is an enemy of our soul who will come at us and condemn us. You knew better. What are you doing? You can't go back to God. God's going to leave you. He's going to forsake you. It's all a lie. We have a God who will never leave us. We have a God who will never forsake us. But David, with all the emotion, is like, God, don't cast me out of your presence. God, don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. Because that's the anxiety that comes along with sin that he's in, is all these things, God's judgment is coming. David's concerned. Cast me not away. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Church, God is a God who is faithful even when we are faithless. Our pursuit should never be to be faithless. Our pursuit should never be to go sin. Our pursuit should always be to exalt Him. But the reality is we stumble and we fall along the way. And we have a God who is gracious to pick us up, to dust us off, to cleanse us, and to put us back on the road of righteousness. He's a great God. And David is crying out, oh God, do this in me. Verse 12, we read, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. First thing, restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
I don't know what your testimony is, but I often see somebody who comes to the Lord, and when God transforms us, there's a miracle within them to cause them to be born again, gives them a new heart, new desires. Man, you can see it in them. They're excited. They're passionate. They want to do anything like, is there a Bible study I can go to? Is there somebody I can tell about Jesus? They want to go. And yet, just the opposite happens when sin creeps into one's life. Then we feel like a hypocrite. Then we feel weighed down by the sin, by the guilt, by the shame. And David says, oh God, would you restore the joy of your salvation? That there's nothing greater in life than knowing that all is well with my soul. There's nothing better. Things can fall, around, fall apart around us, but knowing that all is well with my soul, that God and I, were good, we're reconciled. There's nothing greater. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God, that I would be content in you and you alone. Many of you know the, the, the chief end of man to, to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. David says, but I would just enjoy you again. That I've been duped by the counterfeit of sin. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. But David knew something about himself. He couldn't do it by himself. He couldn't do it by pulling himself up by his own bootstraps and say, I'm going to do better this time. How many people try that? Like tomorrow it's going to get better. Tomorrow will be a better day. It doesn't work for the diet. I'll start the diet tomorrow. It doesn't get better. It doesn't start for anything. We can't do it on our own strength. David here says, uphold me with a willing spirit. Church, that's a great part of this prayer. Oh God, would you give me the power? David's asked for pardon. Now he's asking for power. God, would you give me the power to be able to walk rightly before you? God, I desire to turn to you. I desire to do what's right. But oh God, would you give me the spirit to do that? That's how I must cry out to him. Oh God, Thank you for your forgiveness, but God, give me a willing spirit that I would obey you and not this sinful nature. That I would glorify you at all times. Point number five this morning is the consecration of life. David says in all this, turning to God, that in a response, he will do something in response. We read in verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your way. Stop there. What did he just ask for in verse 12? A willing spirit. God, give it to me. God, if you do this in me, God, I will be able to then follow out and I will be able to teach transgressors your ways. Church, I want to point something out. David is not making a deal with God. He's not bartering with God. Oh God, if you give me forgiveness, then God, I'll work for you. It's not what he's saying. And there are so many times that we want to make some kind of deal with God. God, if you only do this, then I'll do that. Or God, if you forgive this, then I'll... David is not doing that. He's saying, oh God, only through your power will I be able to do this. And then he says in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. Church, what do you see him continue to do? Oh, Lord, you, God, would you do this in me? Would you work these things through me? 
He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. He says, the sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. With restoration in mind, David is pledging wholeheartedly to serve God again through his power, God's power. But it's contingent upon one thing here. Out of that whole passage, you must pick up on verses 16 and 17 what David says here. David knows that he can't just barter with God. He can't give more offerings. He can't do more work and make up for his sin. You see, in life, sometimes we're fooled by that. Us married guys, we think if we blow it, we could just go buy some flowers and say, here, honey, I got you flowers. And ladies, you know that doesn't really work. But we're fooled thinking somehow that makes up for our error. And people take that same mentality and they go to God and think, well, I blew it, so let me go do this. I'm going to go to church, you know, three times this week, or I'm going to, you know, give more money this week, or I'm going to pray longer, or read the Bible more. And they think, I, maybe I can make up with works. He says, no, it doesn't. That's not going to do it. God doesn't delight in that. What he delights in for the sinner is that they are broken over their sin. That instead of delighting in the sin, they despise the sin as God despises the sin. That they understand they have sinned and rebelled against a holy God. We must be broken over sin. Sin is not something to be toyed with or played with or minimized or justified. God is looking for those who have a broken spirit, a contrite spirit. That instead of thinking, oh, sin is so pleasurable and so great and shucks, I have to give it up that instead we would see the horror of sin, that it's rebellion against a holy God. And we would be broken over that. David was broken over his sin. And he vows to teach others about the goodness of God. Many scholars believe that in light of this confession and prayer unto God, that later on David wrote Psalm 32. I'm going to read through it real quick, because you can see as he vowed to teach others about God's goodness. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What has David experienced? Just that. And he knows how good it is and how wonderful it is to experience that God has forgiven me. God has forgiven me for what I did. I knew I ought not to, but God has forgiven me. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. He says, there's nothing like it. To know that God's forgiven me, blotted out all my transgression, and now I don't have to go try to lie to cover things up, but I've confessed unto God that I am clear from all those sins. And then we read earlier, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Sadly, church, that was not an immediate response. That it was God in his faithfulness that would send Nathan to him to call him out. But there was a response of a downward spiral of sin in David's life. But when confronted, he confessed. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. 
Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Now it's flipping. It says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I have a question. David's going to instruct others. He's encouraging them. But he's encouraging them through something he's experienced. That once his bones felt as though they were broken. That his strength was stripped from him because of sin. But now because of the forgiveness of God. Now being reconciled with God, he rejoices. There are shouts of joy. There is freedom. Church, there is nothing like it. But the enemy of our soul would love to keep us in that sin. To tell us, you've sinned too much. You knew you ought not do that. How would you run to God now? These are all lies. We see it here. That we're to run to God. We're to confess to God. And God being full of love, being full of compassion, being full of mercy would offer us forgiveness. That once again we can rejoice in God. Once again we can be free from the bondage of the weight of shame and guilt and filth that comes from sin. And then once again we can be concerned not only about me, myself, and I, but about God. Our last point this morning, point number six, is a concern for God's glory. Let me ask you this. When David was chasing after Bathsheba and then trying to cover up his sin, do you think he was concerned about God's glory? The Bible says that sin hardens our heart. And David was chasing after just trying to cover stuff up one thing after another. And he ends this psalm. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. David did not care how God was worshipped before when he was in sin. But all of a sudden, now that he is right with God, he's confessed and cried out to God. He wants God's glory on display. But guess what? While he was in sin, he didn't realize how much his sin affected others. And most of us never do. We think that that sin is just my sin and it doesn't affect anybody else, but sin is focused on self. It doesn't see the effect of what's going on. Sin is only focused on itself, but it always, church, listen, it always has negative effects on others. Sin always does. David's escapade with sin affected Israel. David's escapade with sin affected his family. David's escapade with sin resulted in consequences in his life that although God forgave him, there were consequences for rebellion. And they weren't good. Some of you are going to go home and read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and you're going to see as you carry through Samuel the consequences that came upon David because of sin. That although he was forgiven, although he was restored, there were natural consequences that came from sin. Here the king, the king of Israel had become toxic. And his toxicity naturally spilt over into his family, 
and into all of Israel. As God's appointed man, he was supposed to lead the people in a manner that exalted God amongst the nations. Church, sin does not exalt God. Sin does not exalt God. Engaging in sin is promoting what God hates. It doesn't promote God's glory. It promotes the things that God hates. And sin hardens the heart. And then the sinner's concern for God's glory is diminished. It's quickly forgotten. But David sought the Lord in confession. David sought the Lord in repentance. And through that restoration, David's concern was once again for the glory of God. Oh God, I'm concerned now about how people will worship you. I'm concerned now about my witness before others. Church, this morning we look at a man, David, who was a godly man. A man, Scripture says, has a heart after God's own heart. And yet he fell hard. And he fell quickly. And some of us can be so quick to say, what a fool, how did he do this? And yet those of you that have fallen into sin know it's that fast. It's that fast. You take your eyes off the Lord and you put it on something else called self. And you dwell on self. And sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. Sin happens so quickly. But sin also has consequences. We know from David's life, it marred him and his family for many, many years to come. However, the joy of God's salvation was restored to him. That in the midst of all those other things, David could worship God. David didn't feel like a hypocrite before God. David got to experience the magnitude of divine grace that although he knew better he knew better that he sinned and he came back to a holy and loving God who welcomed him back in who showered his grace and his mercy upon him look God was justified in killing David but not only did he not kill him but he bestowed his grace and his love and his mercy upon him question this morning is, how about you? Are you in a place where you need God's mercy? Are you in a place where you can cry out, oh God, have mercy upon me. Just as he did for David, he will do for you as well. And he will continue to do for you. As believers in Jesus Christ, our aim is to glorify God, but when we stumble, he is continually the God who pours out grace upon grace. He is the God that will give us the spirit to be able to obey him and follow him and to glorify him. He is not the God of condemnation. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there, there's no more condemnation. We're in Christ. Jesus has paid the penalty for sin. Past sin, present sin, and future sin. It is Finish. Church, no longer will you walk in condemnation. No longer are you to sit and feel the shame and the guilt of sin, but you are to be freed in Christ. This morning, would you cry out to him as David did? I want you to stop and reflect on that statement for a moment. That this morning, you can be forgiven of all sin. You know the same David would cry out another time and say, God, search me and know me and reveal any wicked way in me. Perhaps this morning you're looking at your life going, well, 
don't think I'm that bad. I don't think there's much there. Well, maybe that would be a prayer of yours. Is God, just show me. God, you're a God of mercy that I can run to you and I can ask for forgiveness and be completely reconciled to you. God, would you show me? And perhaps there's some of you this morning going, Pastor, you have no idea the sin is glaring at me. Would it be right now that you cry out to God? Would it be right now that you are forgiven in Christ? Would it be right now that you realize that Jesus paid the total penalty for all of your sin, all of your rebellion, and that you could be free and forgiven right now? That you could walk in the newness of life today. Today. If that is you, my question is, what are you waiting for? In your heart, cry out to him. Just as David did, Lord, have mercy upon me. Have mercy. He is a good God. He is a loving God. Christ has died in your place so that you can be free. Let's pray. Father, we... I am overwhelmed by your grace, by the magnitude of your divine grace. That in this place, some in here will say, I am not that bad. But God, if we only asked you to reveal any wicked way in us, we'd realize that sin does dwell in this flesh. And yet, God, out of your mercy, out of your abundance of grace and love, that you would offer forgiveness. That you would offer grace upon grace. God, I pray for those this morning that, God, you have divinely and providentially brought them to this place to hear this message because today is the day their sin stands right before them. They know of their rebellion. They know of their sin. They know they've done what they ought not do. That today they would have heard once again that you are a God of love. That you are a God who has your arms open wide to restore them, to be reconciled to them, to forgive them, to free them from guilt and shame and the horror of sin. God, I pray that that would take place this morning. That, God, it would be for the good of that individual, but, God, ultimately for your glory, for your great namesake. Together with one voice, we rejoice that you are a good God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.